Hey, Nikki. Hi. Hi, Heather. Do you recognize me? I'm the person that always says hi to you around the lake and at Whole Foods or at Lucky's. <laughs> and I trained with your daughter in Brazil. Right, right. You did yeah. your uh, pattern, your movement training there, or your or your rocking training. I did it both. So this was um, oh. almost I, yeah. close to twenty years ago when you could do the dual certification. Right, right. She promised long ago that she'd move back to the United States sometime, but I don't know if it's ever going to happen. <laughs> it's, it's funny. It sounded like you almost when you were saying rock movement, you almost said you're patterning. Um, I know because I've been going back and looking at all of this stuff and patterning popped right out of my mouth. But well, that's, that, that's, that's great because I, have, I was just speaking to someone and they said hello to you. And that was, that, that was uh, Judith Ashton. No kidding. Yeah, I just had a, a small phone call with her and I said I was going to be seeing you. Um, and she didn't know Heather Starr's song, but she knew Heather Wing. Yeah, well, I've had a few names in my life. Yeah. I have yeah. a lot of gratitude toward her. What a gift she gave me in this work that I love. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll, I'll say then, um, Heather, I'm so grateful, even though we only had one session together in your basement. Uh, it was such an amazing session. And I had been struggling with Rolf movement before that. I had really been trying to figure out what is Rolf movement because at the Institute, they talk about it, but depending on the teacher you have, it's very, you get a different sort of thing. And I had done a class before and, and I didn't connect with that teacher. I didn't really get what we were trying to do in the in, it, in that program. And I left being like, eh. and then I did a session with you and I left being like, I want to be a Rolf movement practitioner. It was, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So I'm grateful for you. <laughs> I would love to know a little bit more of the history. You know, I would love to hear a little bit more about, your history with Rolf movement and how it's come into your life. And then I'm slightly fascinated with how you, you birthed a, a Rolfer and Rolf movement practitioner <laughs> where Layla's gone and done her thing. You so, should, yeah. <laughs> well, um, I think I should actually start by just saying that. Ida always talked about, now, see, I knew Ida. I studied, I didn't sit in class with her, but my husband, Tom Wing, did. And he downloaded every night to me from class. So that was really, really exciting. And I feel like I learned a great deal. I feel like Ida is one of my main teachers. She always insisted that movement, that Rolfing was education and that movement was really important. And unfortunately, she had a fairly Martian approach to um, movement, like um, head up, waistline back, elbows out, and that kind of direct command didn't work very well. People made me big people tense, but she knew that. And so she started early on uh, getting people to help her. And the first one was Dorothy Nolte. And Dorothy Nolte's trained with her in the late 50s, and then during the 60s developed something she called structural awareness, which was the first movement process based on Rolfing principles. And she worked with Ida on that. And when I met Dorothy Nolte in 1970, I had gotten my first, um, my first three sessions at Esalen. And then I came back to, we were living in Del Mar down near San Diego, and I drove up 
to Los Angeles to get the rest of my work from Dorothy. And when she told me about the movement work, my ears just pricked up. But then she said, well, you can't do it unless you're a rolfer. So I was kind of discouraged. But then later, I heard about Judith Aston. She trained with Ida in the late 60s. She was a movement facilitator for, for gestalt therapy, and she was a dancer. And she developed the... And she did some work with Dorothy, but she sort of took over the movement work then. And they, she and Ida called it Rolf Aston Structural Patterning and Stillness in Motion. That was the name of the discipline at that time. And I trained with her in 1974. And part of the training was we needed to, um, needed to take audit, a, a, a full audit. In those days, we had the audit and practitioner, which maybe you remember with that. Is that before your time? <laughs> and it's before our time. Yeah. Before our, my time. It was before, yeah. Well, it ended sort of in the late 80s. We started experimenting with different ways of doing it. But anyway, I audited with Emma Hutchins that fall of 1974. And then early in December went to, um, where did we have that? Somewhere in just north of San Francisco. And uh, I trained, had my first training with her then and trained with her for the following two years. She had three or four trainings, I can't remember exactly, until she split from the Roth Institute. She and Ida, I remember the last training I was in, she would be, sometimes we'd meet in the evening and she would be in tears after having talked with Ida and felt not understood. Anyway, they came to a parting of the ways in 1977. And I guess that seems not so long ago, but I guess you guys weren't part of it yet then. <laughs> but it was, it was, pardon? I wasn't even born yet then. <laughs> I was born in 77. You were born in 77. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I forget sometimes. The years seem to so come together. But anyway, um, it was like a divorce in the community. And, you know, like our parents, Ida and <laughs> Judith, had had a divorce. So it was heavy. And then um, then later we had the guild breakaway, but the first breakaway was Judith. And she became very, you know, if you're going to be with, if you're going to uh, stay with the Roth Institute, then I will no longer be your teacher, was her words. And But there was a big gap because she'd been teaching very effectively, um, what we called lead-in movement classes before the practitioner training, with a lot of focus on how the practitioner used their body and how that affected the quality of their work. And um, so when she left, there was this gap. And Roger Pierce, I don't know if you've ever known him, but he now lives in Longmont, not too far away. Roger Pierce and Gail, now Rosewood, um, and I started teaching the lead-in trainings. And that was very exciting. Three of us worked together really well. We were fast friends. And Roger, would, they would come and stay with me, and then we would go over to the Institute because we lived near the Institute then and, and teach. And so that was sort of the beginning. And then there was a time when we gathered all the patterners who didn't go with Judith they all came to my home. I invited them. They came from all over the country. We shared the travel expenses. And um, we hung out together for quite a few days. And it's, it's a long time ago now. It was 1978, I think. But um, 
we shared our ideas and we dreamed up how we could create a movement program for the Rolf Institute. It was exciting times. And then for a couple of years, what we had, we had what we called movement exchange workshops where we would get together and exchange what we were learning and what we were doing. And, and sometimes we'd have other teachers came and we had Dorothy Nolte come in and teach. No, not Dorothy. Her student, Rachel Harris came and taught. And then, uh, in one of those, I met Emily Conrad and learned about Continuum, which has been a really important influence for me. So that's some of how it started. Heather, and can you talk about the kind of the, the style that you have made crafted after when Judith had left and then that in between time before you met Emily? Mm-hmm. When you were doing you and these group of people were together creating your ideas, mm-hmm. could you describe it or name it? Of well, what, what it, I, I what would the say that, yeah, the, my work is based in Judith's work in those years that I studied with her. And she had, um, I think, one of her most brilliant things was getting a hold of how important it was for the rofer to use their body well when roffing. And I've done a lot of work, even recently with roffing students here, teaching them how to use their body so that they use weight and not force, which makes all the difference. If you use weight, it's a more penetrating touch and doesn't cause pain. So in those early years, I used to go into the classes and try and guide the the Rolfers in the practitioner training to use their bodies skillfully. And it was hard. They would give me a lot of static, like, leave me alone. I'm just trying to get this wrong. <laughs> and I'm going, no, no, <laughs> you're not going to get it that way. And I can remember even watching one of the assistants, I forget who he was now, giving, working during a sixth hour, just leaning his elbow into somebody's buttock and going, loosen up. And of course, <laughs> it didn't. So, the basis of my work is from Judith, but hey, I've been doing this for 45 years. And <laughs> so for clarification, when Rolf movement was in the beginning state stages, would you say it was more about the Rolfer learning how to work more efficiently opposed to teaching a client how to? No, no, no. That was okay. only one aspect of it. We, uh, we were all working with private clients and we taught our first training in 1979. I taught it with Megan James and we did a base. We had developed a Roth movement training that had two phases, actually three. Um, we had a, we had a selection workshop. We weren't happy with the way selection committees were working in those days because the people would just come in and sit down in front of, a row of roffers and be de- and they would decide in half an hour whether that person could be a roffer or not. So we had a week-long selection class, and in that class we taught the work. We saw how they responded. We had them practice teaching things. I remember one innovative young woman teaching you how to teaching us all how to get your bra off without taking your shirt off. You know, <laughs> Hillary King, <laughs> she was wonderful. And uh, then we would then we had a training in which we worked with each other. It was built, built like the Rolfing training. We spent our morning in the Rolfing class across the hall. 
in auditing the, demonst the lecture demonst and demonstration. And then we spent the afternoon working with each other and we had a, I had still a program of tools that we would teach and practice with. And then the third phase of the training, we had outside clients come in and work with them. So it, the, the work with the Rolfers was just a small part of what we were doing then. So as you were, as you were, after Judith had, had left and before you found Continuum, you, were you, you were bringing other things into it as well? Or was it more so sort much. of... What I started to say was, yeah. Continuum, Continuum must have been important, but I'm not teaching Continuum when I teach Roth Movement. I've pulled a few pieces out of it, particularly the micro-movements, which I work with, they work as a solvent for pattern. If somebody's head is locked into a certain position and you get the micro-movements going, then other options start to emerge. And the, 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 the sort of, this is the only way feel of the pattern can begin to let go. Um, but I also started to say that 45 years of teaching off movement, it's a long time, <laughs> okay? And... Many times clients come up with problems that the tools I have won't handle, so I make up new ones. So my work is based in what I learned from Judith, but it has evolved from my own experiments and explorations over the years with the people that come to me and That's teach beautiful. me things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had one session with a, a young man who was really tense, and I tried all my tricks, and they weren't working. But he was a professional frisbee player. And finally I said, okay, let me see you throw that frisbee. And we, we had a pretty big backyard in our house at that time. So we went out in the backyard and I watched him throw the frisbee. And every time he pitched it, he would do this huge grin. <laughs> and, and I looked at that and went, oh. So we came back in and I worked with his face and everything let go. He had his professional face and that smile that was frozen on there, you know, and it tied up his whole body. So then I developed a whole session on working with faces, which I haven't done for a while, but it was quite effective and fun. And so... If, if you want to practice that again, we can have another call. I'm happy to do some to work to help you get it uh, back up and running. Yeah. Well, I think I remember it okay. Yeah. So... That's sort of my answer to what my work is now. It's, and it's still evolving. I mean, you learn a whole lot by just, by just uh, practicing. And so what, you've had a lot of years of practice, but could you um, share a little bit of the, the magic, the secret sauce of where, where do you go and tap into to find your new, your new skills to work with the, let's say the challenging client who has that fixed smile on. Well, let me see, how do I say this? So we Rolfing movement teachers have, you know, we have a sort of a toolbox of different movements, different exercises that work to say shift the way the shoulder moves with the arm and things like that, that they're exercises in awareness and in shifting, shifting pattern. Uh, but all of those tools 
just slide over the surface if you don't get down to what the pattern is. And that's so, I don't know if all your listeners know what I mean by pattern, but I'm talking about, it's sort of the basic way that a person expresses in the world. And it's shaped by birth and by how you're handled as an infant and how you relate to your social groups, starting with your family. And then, you know, you want to walk like the, the, the lead girl in school or you want to, you know, swagger like the tough guy that's the, the football chief or something like that. And so um, there's, and then their, their patterns are shaped by what you do in your life. You know, I was very much shaped by studying ballet as a young girl, unfortunately. I had to overcome a lot of that. Um, and also we're shaped by trauma, by injuries and illnesses and abuse, all different kinds of things. And so a lot of our patterns are fear-based. Some, some patterns, I mean, when I'm talking about the person's pattern, it's really a conglomeration of patterns that um, overlie and compensate. You understand this, I'm sure. And it's, a lot of these patterns are fear-based. And some of them work very well. Some of the ways we're doing things work very well for us, and those aren't the ones we need to worry about. But when the client comes in, it's so important that we listen and pay attention. And I was going to talk some about what Rolf movement was, but one of the things that's really important is the finding of the neutral space. And the neutral space is where you're not, where everything's, it's, you know, the basic idea is everything's aligned. And when it's aligned, we have lift. And we also have this dynamic balance point where nothing's hanging out into gravity and being pulled down. Everything's supported by what's underneath. And when we get to that space, we have, you know, we have the, we have the saying, somebody has an attitude. You know what I mean? And so it might be a cock of the head or it's an emotional thing, you know, the way they talk. It's part of the pattern. And when we're in neutral space, we, we lose our attitudes. And that means that we're available to connect in a way we can't when we're, you know, say that I'm listening to my, so I want to find out about this pattern that this person comes in with. Part of it, I watch them walk and tell a tremendous amount about what's going on with someone by the way they walk. Uh, but also there's a conversation. And in that conversation, I want to be listening from neutral space. If I'm too far forward, I might be giving the message, this is an attitude. Okay, I'm going to fix you. I know what to do. I'm on top of it. And that might be intimidating to the client, and they might not feel that you're listening. Or you might be, you know, hanging back in the chair, talk away, but I don't really care. You're giving that message. So when you're in neutral space, you're giving a message of presence. And then that's... Listening in that way is an expression of love. And over the last 20 years, it has grown stronger and stronger for me that we need to work with love. And if we create in our studio an environment of unconditional love, then miracles can happen. We need skill, no question. And I'm you know, definitely wanting everyone to develop their skill, but 
Skill without love is a cold thing. I've experienced it. I mean, there's rolfers I've been to that I felt were pretty skillful, but I didn't feel their caring. I didn't go back. (laughs) What I'm saying here is then the first thing is to discover that pattern and to discover it in a field of love and support. And then, as I say, many of the patterns are fear-based and it takes courage to let that come out and to let go of the pattern of defense that we may have uh, to find another option. So I told you I studied ballet as a little girl. I also had some tough stuff in my childhood and I was um, arched and head up, back arched, chest tight and high and head up. And I you know, talk about an attitude, and I gave long messages to people. Uh, they, they called me stuck up and snooty, but I was scared is what it was. And my relationships changed drastically in proportion to how I slowly let go of that arched back and held chin and so forth. So this work is so transformative and important. I've wandered a little bit. Um, well, I wanted to um, yeah. kind of anchor in from, because like I said, I studied with your daughter and Monica Kaspari. And one of the things that your daughter said to me, and I was, you know, I, rolfing was one of my first careers. And so I was in my early, mid-20s. And she, in one of the training, she had said, a lot of the things that um, serve us, can be also a disservice yes. and or things that serve us can also be limiting or things that are limiting can also be serving. And I thought, and that was kind of said in talking about our histories, our patterns things that we've taken on in our lives. And I thought that was so profound. And like the kind of the simplest thing is when we shrug our shoulders, we do it out of fear and that's very serving, but it's, but it's not something we want to stay in and that would be become limiting. And when you were talking about holding this neutral, what I kept on hearing too, and then you anchored it to love is like holding in to the balance of kind of the things that are working for us and the things that aren't, and then finding that medium of not completely abandoning our history and what's kind of made us who we are, but also coming into what's going to serve us and kind of stay in this neutral loving space. Right, right. Well, as I say, some of the patterns that we have work well. What we're working with is the ones that get in our way, that limit us. Mm -hmm. And fear is limiting. And as we can, you know, I sent a tender. Ida, you know, Ida had had a larger vision, even, (laughs) than helping people to find a body that balances well in gravity. She was also believing that this work was evolutionary. She talked about the upright man, and man meant everybody in those days. She was before women's life. (laughs) But uh, she really had a question, an inquiry, about if we get rid of the obstructive, limiting, fear-based patterns, if we can start to remove those, 
then can we perhaps as a humankind also let go of our habits of worrying and territoriality and greed and become heart-based? And looking at where we are now, you know, we need a change. And I feel like our work is more important than ever because we're person by person, maybe class by class, bringing people into a more uh, a way in which they can be more connected. I've been very, very um, touched by the work of Charles Eisenstein. Are you familiar, either of you, with his work? Is he, he's the ec- uh, like embodied ecology. Is that him? Yeah, that, I think that's. I think that's the book I read that loved. I loved was um, the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible, and he talks about the story of separation which is, I'm alone in this world. If I don't get mine, you'll get it, and there won't be enough, and I I won't be okay kind of separation, which is basically the story we've been living out of for the last several millennia, some exceptions. And the story of what he calls interbeing, which is he believes our only salvation at this point is to begin to understand that we're all connected. And I feel like as we are... And, you know, I lived through the 60s. I was a young woman in the 60s. And that was a time of such hope because there were a lot of threads of interbeing coming forward then. Uh, Communes, you know, let's live close to the earth. Let's share. Let's take care of each other. Very different from, you know, the capitalistic, (laughs) how much money can I get out of this approach? And um, make love, not war. That was our cry, you know? And a lot of that got lost, but it's still around. And I feel like Rolfing and some of the, all, a lot of the New Age work is part of the New Age p- potential kind of human potential work that was so alive in the 60s and 70s is still around, but it's gotten a little bit smothered by some other things that are going on. But here we are with our riots over racial inequality and racial violence time to wake up and realize we are all connected and we need to have our hearts open to each other. And I think we're helping with that with Rafi. So I'm, I'm excited about that and excited about all of you who are coming along after me and doing that, including my daughter. <laughs> and Leo, you know, your work with Leo, Nikki, she's very much a Hubert Godard follower. Mm-hmm. She, in fact, they are fast friends. Every time she's in Europe, she spends time with him, and she adores him, and I think it's mutual. And I know little of that. I, I, talked, I think I wrote you that, Andrew. Um, I've met the man and, and um, experienced some of his work, but I haven't learned it. So she, you'll have a different kind of movement experience with Lael than you will with me. But it's still toward the same goals. Well, I, I don't know if it's just when I studied or my memory retention or what it is. I mean, it could be a little bit of everything. But often people ask me, because I spent some time teaching part of the phase one in, um, at the Rolf Institute. I haven't been there in a couple of years, but for about five years, I was part of the phase one team. And there was this kind of confusion of what is Rolf movement? What is Rolf movement? And when they would do sessions with me, 
because often people would come and do privates with me and and if there is some truth to when you've done it enough you kind of just start cultivating your tools and then on top and with that i've done i'm trained in many modalities so i've borrowed from concepts mm -hmm. from pilates gyrotonic yoga yeah. other things and um but it's been a little fascinating for me to kind of see where Rolf movement is and when there's particular principles that are now spoken about because my recollection and also because in the, the time the Brazilian training, training, the structural and the movement were really intertwined. So it's hard for me. It's not like we had a break necessarily. I mean, we definitely yeah. had chunks of time that were Rolf movement, but it was like, it was always constantly talked about. So I feel my training is a lot of just been a, a somatic awareness. Mm -hmm. I mean, there wasn't, I, their tonic function was talked about. I don't remember it being a very heavily influenced and maybe it is now, or maybe I missed that point and just kind of took what I, what I needed to learn. But about 20 years ago it was, but I definitely had heard of Hubert and his influence and, you know, there was a lot about organization with movement, with the gravity mm -hmm. that he talks a lot about. Well, I have been sitting here in my studio working with rocking students coming for movement sessions, and I've heard a lot of confusion, which has made me sad. Uh, and so I want to just say I have very definite principles of what I'm working with, and they're rocking principles. I mean, the basis of Ida's work was, her aha was, um, how the body relates to gravity makes a difference. And so her principles of support and alignment, I mean, these are the principles that I work with. First of all, you know, our structural work is to put people together so that the feet are under the legs and the legs are under the pelvis and the pelvis is under the torso, which is under the head, and then the body is aligned and the core which is I think Ida borrowed right straight from yoga I'm a yogi too I've been practicing for since the 60s a long time and uh, still <laughs> and um, then the core then becomes straight so that the energy can move through and so how do we then move out of these principles I mean I had one student come in and say my rofer finished the session and I stood up and they said, beautiful, don't move. <laughs> you know? So then <laughs> this obviously isn't very practical. So in rough movement, then we're looking to support action, which means using the rocker principle, putting the foot under the torso when you're stepping forward and putting the foot under the torso when you go to pick something up, for instance. Not fighting gravity when you sit up from the table, but rolling to the side, working with gravity, and then when we have the alignment, then I play a lot with what I call balance point. It's a point where you are your lightest and where we have this wonderful possible possibility that we have in roughing of lift, where gravity no longer pulls us down. When we're like out of alignment, then something's hanging out where gravity can pull on. I remember Megan James saying, gravity's like a monster under the floor. Waiting, waiting to pull on something, and as soon as you get it where it doesn't support it, then, you know. And I'm, work, I'm around a lot of older people now, because I am myself, 
and many of them have now need walkers to support the unsupported parts of their body. So that's very important. And then the finding the, of neutral space, which is a place of peace. You know, you're not, you're not struggling with your attitudes anymore. And I practice meditation, and it's sort of like the place of meditation. Then the, the next principle is the core. And that's bringing awareness to the center, literally physically centering yourself with breath and with movement, and then learning to move with what I call integrity of movement. The whole body participates in the direction of intention. So if I'm working at the table and I have my butt sticking out behind me, then my torso is no longer supported and all my pelvic energy is going behind instead of into the person. So keeping that alignment as we work, for instance, and working off the toe hinge using weight instead of muscle is another way that we can talk about moving from core. Or if I reach out to shake hands, remember shaking hands? <laughs> but if I reach out to shake hands and I'm putting my arm out with the intention of saying to this person, I'm glad to meet you, but if at the same time I'm taking my chest away, the message is, well, here's my hand, but I really don't care. If only you could teach Donald Trump about that. It would be so wonderful. <laughs> Donald Trump. Yes, pray for him. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so that's another learning to move from core, bringing your whole self to what you're doing. I had this student early on. He's a young man. He was one of Lael's boyfriends. <laughs> He now lives two doors down, and I see him walking his dog. We still remember each other. But he was, he had, it was in the early 70s, and most people didn't have computers. And he got a job with a computer, and he came in for a movement session saying his back hurt. And so I said, well, show me how you sit at the computer. And I moved my desk aside and gave him a chair. And he turned sideways to the desk, and he put his feet on one end, and then he said, the computer's over here, and then he twisted his body around. Most of him was facing that way. Twisted his body around so that he faced the computer. And I said, well, no wonder your back hurts. Here now, and I set him up facing the computer and putting it in front of him, and he said, I don't want to give all of myself to that computer. And he quit his job. <laughs> but, but that's a case where... He wasn't bringing his whole self to what he was doing. He didn't want to, and it was totally in his posture and it hurt. So bringing your, whole, bringing your whole body in the direction of intention makes your walking easier if you're not dragging your upper body behind you, if your upper body's on top of your pelvis, for instance. And then the next really important piece is fluidity. And here's where I bring in a lot of the continuum work. That's where I've been very what we call responsiveness, that awareness of the fascial web, everything, you know, you know what I mean by that, all the connective tissue, being this resilient three-dimensional web that we're working with. And Ida said, the arches breathe. And we know we don't have lungs down there, but what she's saying is that even the breath should move all the way through the body without restriction. And of course, because of our fear patterns, we have lots of restrictions. And wherever there's a restriction or, you know, or has, say someone sprained their ankle and it healed in a twisted position, then the movement doesn't go through to that ankle and the person starts to limp and compensations accrue. And uh, 
or one of the most common ones is the neck being held when you breathe. And then there's neck pain. So when the ripple of movement comes along and hits a still place, it creates an impact, and where the impact is, there can be pain. And often, then it spirals because you're in pain, and then you hold your neck even more, and then the pain gets worse. So that's a place where I would use the micro-movements to soften the rigidity of the neck. One of the ways I think about what we're doing in roughing and rough movement is we're melting the body armor and letting it become, not throwing it away, but melting it inward to become fluid strength at the core. So those are some of the principles. I have a list here I was making. <laughs> I think I said them all. Yeah. Those are the, some of the principles that I work with, and I feel like they are the principles that I work with structurally and also with movement. Does that connect for you, Nikki, with what you're... I think it does. Um, I think the print, I mean, I find that the principles of Rolfing has been, I mean, that's the guiding light to create structural integration, whether you're doing the 10 series or non-formalistic series or sessions or Rolf movements is creating support, adaptability, palatinicity, closure, mm -hmm. trying, you know, and, and, and coming back to that, the love piece is meeting your client where they are, really yes. respecting that they're maybe coming in with edges and trying on different patterns in a very titrating manner. So it becomes, they get to own it by trying it on a little bit by little bit and not like a brute force within the tissue or brute suggestion of like, no, you got to do it this way. So, um, yeah, I mean, oh, I think that's so important that we, we don't, this Rolf movement is not, a, is not fundamentalist. <laughs> okay. The one and only right way to do it, but rather that we present it as options. And when we get stuck in a pattern, particularly a fear-based pattern, We'll, we're probably unconscious of it. And then the first step is finding the consciousness. Oh, when I lean back like this, it puts the whole weight of my torso into my lumbar spine. No matter, no wonder it hurts. But it's also, when we look at it as an option, there's times when sometimes those old patterns are, are, are what we need. Say you're at, in, an, in a gathering where the vibrations aren't so good. Well, then maybe pulling back a little and crossing your arms across your chest is the right thing to do. So it's not like you're saying, throw it away. I worked recently with a young woman who, I forget what it was, but she was in a lot of, in a situation where she was getting hit all the time. So her neck was like, and I think it was a fighting, not, not a, I think it was some kind of organized something where she was getting hit all the time. And no wonder her neck was tight. And I said, yeah, if somebody's clobbering you, Tighten your neck, that's going to keep you from whiplashing. But when somebody isn't clobbering you, let it go. You know, and the ballet dancer definitely wants to be able to turn her feet out when she's dancing, but walking that way really doesn't work as well as having them go straight forward. So it's options. Like when you're dancing, okay, turn, do that big turnout. When you're walking, 
see how it feels to roll through your foot instead of falling off the medial arch. Um, so I think it's very important that it's, we see it as options and that we let our clients know that, yeah, you have this pattern for a reason. Totally. And uh, is that reason still here? Hmm. You know, and a lot of times we're looking at patterns. I think you mentioned this, Nikki, that um, they're, they're old now. You know, the two-year-old boy standing up, sticking his chest out, sticking his butt out and saying, no, that's a really important step in his process. Right? I think Nikki can relate to that more, more right <laughs> yeah. now. I have a couple boys growing up now. <laughs> but if he keeps that stance when he's 35 and he's trying to relate to people in the business world, it's going to be off-putting. Hmm. Not going to do something. He's probably going to have a backache by this I was going to say, I mean, what you say is a lot, it took me a while to get there, but of really trying to educate my clients when they say I have this problem or I'm, and I'm doing, I'm sitting this way for me telling them this pattern has served you. It, it did it to protect you. It did it to help you. It doesn't need to still be there. Uh, if, if it's not ready to go, don't, don't have anim animosity towards it, recognize it, have love to it, but recognize it. You, it doesn't have to be there, um, but it it wasn't bad. It served it served and can still serve a purpose. Um, Go and pick yeah. it up again. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And yeah. Those patterns that they come in with, I say, though, don't worry, you won't lose it. You know that one really well. Mm. But maybe you want to try something else in this situation. Yeah. And, and so that's that's a very important part of the loving environment, also. And, and that, that optioning, uh, when I first started teaching yoga, we, we taught or we instructed, we didn't offer. And it was very much the teacher knows and therefore, and everyone follows the teacher. And, and that's how I did it because that's how I was taught. And then slowly through different education models, I started to understand how would it feel like if you did this and, and giving the offering to, and it's funny because a lot of people I would teach didn't like that because they weren't familiar with that model and they wanted to be told what to do. They wanted to go into patterns, even if it didn't serve them because they, they hadn't, I guess, maybe built that awareness up and it, it takes time for some people to get used to that, you know, Oh, I, I'm actually in control of, of, of myself and I, and I can, Take that. So I, I love like what you said that that giving options and offerings is so important. And that was from Judith. She was way into that. Yeah, it's exciting that you talked to her. Recently, I've been completely out of touch. I don't know how she is or anything. So you know what? You both have this thing about you, and and so people who are listening, maybe they can hear it. But and it's one of the things I was mentioning to her. There's something about people who do the work. And that's one of the reasons I really wanted to have you, besides to share your, your amazingness, is when people do the work that a lot of people, a lot, I've met a lot of teachers who preach the work, who talk about the work, but maybe don't necessarily follow through on the same. And there's no judgment and there's, you know, but when people do the work, there's something about them. Everything you mentioned there about the principles of, of your Rolf moving, I'm recalling in my memory of watching you instruct and move across the room. And I remember when I when I watched you in the, in our in our session, thinking, 
this is what a Rolf body is because you floated across the room, but you weren't airy. You had a connection to the earth. You were strong. You were, um, you were buoyant. You, you had this sort of everything going on. Like if I wanted to push you over, it would be hard. At the same point, if I just lightly touched you, you could also respond in this, this way. It was, it was, um, you had your, your feet on the ground, your head in the sky, your heart forward, your back behind you. Everything was, was, there was a fluidity there. It was all that. So everything you said, I can recall watching you and even seeing you now just across the screen is like, it's very clear to me that, that you practice what you preach. Um, and it's very, and, and similar with, with Judith, just speaking to her briefly. And I've watched some of her videos recently. There's something about the both of you of having done the work um, and continuing to do it uh, that is is humbling. Well, it's my lifeline. Yeah. You know, at this point, so I'm almost 85. <laughs> and the body gets old and has a lot of problems. And my practice daily is a combination of Rolf movement, yoga, and continuum. And I don't know where I'd be without it. If I leave it for a few days, I can already feel it. So it's at this point in my life, as my body ages, it is my lifeline. And, um, and I love it. I mean, when I first had my first sessions with Maria Byron in 1972, three it was, I was so excited. I just, I, I would practice for an hour and I, would be practicing all day long. And then I would be, oh, how does this work in the kitchen? And how does it bend over and pick up a pan? And how do you use your body weight when you cut a carrot? And, and <laughs> how do you navigate around this obstacle in the kitchen? You know, just playing with all of that was so exciting. And it's still exciting. I mean, I think that for me, it is, it's a spiritual practice. It's a spiritual practice in being present. Hmm. And uh, when I'm not present is when I stumble, you know, <laughs> literally. And so, yeah, it's embodying it is, is really what we're trying to guide people to do is to really live this stuff. And when they do it, then there's a grace that comes. And I mean that word in the fullest sense. Well, you know, that, 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 go on, go on. Yeah, I was married to a theologian, Sam Keen, for many years. My, when I, I married him when I was 18. And we were at the seminary where he taught and so forth. And there was a lot of theology floating around. And I became very bewildered, but I was also a dancer. And so I became very bewildered by this word grace. And when I started studying rough movement, I got it. I went, oh, it's the same thing. Because... Being in grace with God is being in harmony with God's will. And being in grace in your body is being harmony, in harmony with gravity. And it's the same. And, one, and one, one person said one time, gravity is the expression of God's love. I really like that. I think I put that in that article that you liked too. Yeah, I like that article. I'm going to share that out for people listening. I'll, I'll, I'll put it out. I just, I, the... One of the things that I think people listening can hear, you are a great storyteller. Um, and, and I think that's, and so you, you wrote this article, maybe others from Rolf Lines, 
you've also we won't have time necessarily get into it but you've also written other books um and it's just it's amazing because you're four novels yeah <laughs> i'm just finishing the first draft of my fifth one yeah no <laughs> it's just it's you're, you're you're beyond like um just so uh fascinating and 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 amazing um but there was something i was going to say before that you, that kind of ties a lot of the beginning into actually the middle and the end and where we just were about that um when you were talking very earlier about you know when people sit back and forth and essentially we're finding presence in in that in that line in the middle my first thought was of, of buddhist thought right of, of being in the moment being in the present and when you start to look at more um like mahayana buddhism there's a sense of um you know, may, uh, of loving kindness. Well, you have loving kindness in, in Theravada as well, but that, that loving kindness that may all beings be free, that sense of when we are, when we're on our, in the present, we are full of love. There's that loving compassion that just exudes. Um, and I, I feel like that really ties, it ties it, it all in, that when we are present, when we are on our line and when we're moving within that, we're moving within grace or um I'm not religious, so God's love doesn't resonate with me. But the same thing, we're moving within within loving awareness, which I think you could tie to be the same sort of thing. Well, you know, uh, I'm sort of my theology is is a little <laughs> not too conservative anymore. But uh, no, I'm mostly Buddhist in my practice now. But it's but that unconditional love, whether you call it God's love or just spirit love or whatever your words it doesn't the words don't matter I'm right. a fundamentalist you know <laughs> well i i think we can all agree that and i i feel this with both the rolfing structural but maybe a little bit more with the rolf movement because there's a little bit more dialogue but we're really helping people our clients find that self-love especially when we're asking to go into self inquiry and mm -hmm. look into introspection. And, you know, we've had some of those clients where it's really easy and they can, that's really accessible and they can dive right in. And then we have those clients that are like, I don't feel anything. What are you doing? And they're, they're, they walked off the table. They, they're showing better efficiency in their movement. Mm -hmm. And although we can see that there's change, greater change that's happened, the end goal is not because ooh, pat ourselves on the back, we got them moving, but the, they get to own it and they really get to feel it. Mm -hmm. And having that kind of challenge with some of those clients that haven't been, that that deep dive within isn't readily available, mm -hmm. to start getting them into that place. And I think when when we get to stay, and I've, I've been doing a lot more reading about somatic awareness and, but when we get that first person point of view and we really, that's our truth and we get to own that and no one else can say, Oh, you, that, that feeling you have isn't really true, but you really get to play in your own sensations, your own feeling, your own being and be okay with it and maybe feel something that's not working with you, but then honor the other parts that are that just that one little cranky spot in your body isn't your whole entire body. You got other things in your body that are working well with you. Yeah. But that gets tricky because pain can be the big barker and that's the only thing you hear. And I think when we get to have 
the opportunity to coach our clients and guide them and be of support to go into that deep dive within themselves, they, they get to, I mean, how can you not start to love yourself when you're in that place? Mm-hmm. And when we get clients that are owning that and walking and leaving out, leaving our treatment room and out in the world and living in that space. Yeah. The world can be much peaceful, peaceful. <laughs> the rolling, rolling work can create the revolution of one love. Yeah, really, really. Yeah. We used to have a, a sort of a chant that we would say, this is back in the seventies. Also Rolf the Pentagon, you know, just so that, what if all those soldiers came down from their tight chests? Maybe they wouldn't feel so much like killing, but of course that would be undermining the Pentagon, which was. But that was, that was uh, the plan in the seventies to undermine the Pentagon. Really? really. Uh, oh, those were interesting times. And these are indeed very interesting times where we are now with the virus and the, and the protests and all that. Oh, I'd, I'd like to think, I'd like to think a lot of good is going to come out of this time, but from a body work, somatic, sensory place, I'd like to think that there's going to be a big change because people are going to, in my mind, people, I'm already, I mean, in the Rothman communities, we hear about people who's already, their clients are saying, I need to see you, I need to see you, that people have recognized having not been touched, having maybe not moved in certain ways in so long that the need is there on the counterpoint some because a lot of people are stuck at home they're on yoga classes zumba classes mm-hmm. feldenkrais classes there is a somewhat of a sense of people tapping into that more now um, but my my lens is colored in that field because i'm i'm so immersed in it that i see it more but i, I do see a lot of um non somatic awareness people, people who are like common, common working people who'd never really get massage are, are doing yoga and it might not be as somatically based, but it's still, the thing I love about yoga is even if you're doing it just for the exercise, you're getting more and you may not recognize it, but you're getting more and it, and it can sneak up. It snuck up on me. I was purely, physical yoga. When I did my first yoga training, I never owned. I said, none of that spiritual shit. I'm just here, you know, like a good exercise. Flash flash forward, my yoga is mostly meditation now. It's like, right. uh, it sneaks up on you. Right. Well, the other thing that's happening is so many people are outside. Hmm. And because they, so they're connecting to nature. Hmm. So many people. I mean, the, Nikki, do you say you live near the lake also? Yeah, I am. I'm just right. It's been so so crowded. Mm -hmm. Yes, the Sunday I went and it wasn't quite so crowded. I think now that more things are opening up, but yeah, it's been so crowded there. I know. Actually, we had to take a break when because we were it's our stomping ground and um, like literally, I'm a block away. And when the start of the pandemic, it was so crowded. Like and you know, you can't really do social distance on those trails. So we kind of stopped, unfortunately, going, and now we could just go first thing in the morning. Well, but. I was there Sunday, and it wasn't so bad anymore. But there is that change coming where people are, you know, are. And as I walk to the lake, I live on on uh, 
I live about a half mile. As I walked to the lake the other day on, on Norwood going north and going west there, there was a little rock by the side of the path said, till we hug again. Mm. So the children have been painting rocks and putting putting messages out all along that walkway. <laughs> and that was when I went, yes, I want to hug my children, my grandchildren again. And <laughs> One thing with that, that similar thing is, so I'm, I'm currently at my parents' house outside of Boston. And whenever I come home, I always go for walks. And I'm always amazed at how, how unfriendly people are. I'm very, it's a New England thing kind of, but I'm very much, when I see people, I, I say hi. And usually in my neighborhood, people are like, why are you talking to me? And now, because people are stuck in their house, it is so amazing. You see them out on walks. Everyone's like, hello, I've never seen you before. But, you know, they're so dire for that connection that I... I grew up in New England. I grew up just outside of Boston. So I lived in Melrose for 10 years from the time I was 7 to 17. And then Mm. my parents moved to Natick. Oh, wow, yeah. And I went to Boston University and Harvard and was a... You know, when after I married Sam, we we lived in the city more. But hmm. so you know that 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 I don't want to stereotype, but you know that mentality um, yeah. that I've worked my whole life to still try to try to move beyond. My my pattern is that New England mentality that I I working to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I think we're at the end of our hour. Is yeah. Or we should say to wrap this up, or. Uh, no, I mean, I, I think the problem is that Nikki and I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours and hours, but um, we want to respect you and your time. I could talk about Ralph Movement forever, but I've said a lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, thank you. We're so grateful to have you on. Um, it's been the highlight. When, I, when we spoke last night on Zoom, it was, it was so nice to see you again. And just, it's really nice to, um, it's just, yeah, I have so many positive words. I'll just cut it off because I'm going to sound like a little blubbering schoolboy. Well, I wanted to thank you so much for taking time to speak with us. And I will look forward to seeing you around the lake or at Lucky's or in the neighborhood. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) And I'm so grateful for you raising your daughter the way you have because I learned so much from my final training with her. Yeah, Layla's a gift. (laughs) she's one powerful alpha woman too <laughs> yeah. okay. well thank you heather have a great night there you too bye now both bye-bye to both of you bye-bye